In our lives, actions, and obligations, moral clarity matters. Given that the essence of moral thought is to address and ameliorate human suffering and to expand human freedoms, how can we afford not to attend to moral clarity when it comes to international relief and development? The Center for Values and International Development seeks to apply the insights, analytical frameworks, knowledge, and experience that already exist within the field of international development ethics to guide relief and development practice. We finish this series with our fifth of five conversations with today's focus on climate justice as part of the Center's ethical development series building an effective bridge between the practitioner's community and the ethicist community to the mutual benefit of both and to the significant improvement in the effectiveness of international relief and development. With me is Dr. Gail Gerard and Belinda Petrie. Gail is the founding director of Georgetown University's Environmental Justice Program. He received his PhD in Applied Mathematics at the École Polytechnique in Paris, France. He also holds a PhD in Theology. From 2015 to 2019, he served as Chief Economist and Executive Director of the French Development Agency, AFD. In 2009, he was nominated Best Young French Economist by Le Mans. And in 2013, he was also ordained as a priest. Also joining us is Belinda Petrie who is an environmentalist from Cape Town, South Africa, and founder and director of One World Sustainable Investments, which is an African-based sustainable development consulting organization focused on adaptive development within the context of changing climate and resource constraints. Belinda was a contributing author to the sixth assessment report of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, specifically on the governance chapter. She is also a PhD candidate at the University of Cape Town with a focus on cooperative governance for water security in Africa. And my name is Evan Papp, and I'm the moderator and producer for the series of ethical discussions for the Center for Values and International Development. Thank you, Gail and Belinda, for participating in this discussion. Thank you for inviting us. Questions will be addressed to both of you, but this is a conversation, so feel free to address each other's comments. And with that, let's begin. Climate justice is typically framed in terms of mitigation and adaptation, and who ought to bear the associated burdens. Briefly describe this distinction and how it applies to humanitarian aid and international development. Gail, could we begin with you, please? Sure, I can do that. So, you know, mitigation is the idea that we should reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So in any case, the idea is that everybody <laughs> should reduce its, its greenhouse gas emissions. That's essentially mitigation. Adaptation is the idea that there is already a kind of embarked global warming that is already taking place, and that's obvious, for instance, in South Africa, um, and that many countries already have to adapt to this, to the ecological disasters. So what we have seen in the last summer is already an example of this, and it will be more and more the case in the coming years. So the, the difficulty is to have to do both at the same time, and according to me, there is a third aspect, which is that global warming, you know, climate change is not a unique problem. Our life would be easy if this was the unique challenge we are facing today. But in addition to that, we are also destroying biodiversity. And there is an intertwined game, play, uh, you know, interaction between destruction of biodiversity on the one hand, let's say forests, and global warming. The more you destroy biodiversity, the more you accelerate the speed at which global warming is taking place and vice versa. So we have to address both issues at the same time. So from my viewpoint, main challenge is ecological disaster that is already taking place. We have to make it as less harmful as possible. 
and to adapt to it. Thank you, Gail. And Belinda, what are your thoughts? Thanks very much. I won't repeat the definitions. I think Gail did a great job on that. Um, And grateful also that you added biodiversity, which is critical at the moment and will be for some time to come. I think the, um, the main issue for me is that it's a very blurred distinction. Um, and one that has been created through the negotiations and the platform around that um, and with an initial school of thought that's lasted for a long time around as long as we mitigate and reduce emissions, we'll be fine. But of course, we're not reducing emissions, um, so we're not going to be fine. And Gail alluded to that. Um, and I think it's blurred for two very specific reasons. One is that um, countries like mine, um, but we're not the only ones, so I'm from South Africa, um, both have to mitigate. We're depending on which numbers you're looking at, we're one of the highest contributors to greenhouse gas emissions in the world. Um, And we have to respond to the challenges of climate change. Um, In other words, we have to adapt. So we've got this sort of double bind um, situation. Um, And then you play that out from a sort of climate justice perspective down to people on the street and on the ground. They don't care whether we're adapting or mitigating, they care that we're able to survive and that their livelihoods will sustain. Um, And that's the most important thing to focus on. And of course, their actions can cause emissions, but the main thing is that they are protected from a world that is not um, reducing emissions at any rate, that you know, not rapidly enough in terms of what's required. I'll stop there. Thank you both. Moving on to the next question. What do you think are the most significant moral implications of the climate crisis? Belinda, let's start with you. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think the moral implications are that if we don't um, do enough, and back to the adaptation, mitigation, non-divide, we being the world, and I think it is a responsibility of everybody. If we don't do enough, we are going against the public good, um, and we are not protecting people, economies, livelihoods, etc. And um, this is enshrined in many countries' constitutions, not the climate change objective, but um, the need to pr- protect the public good, the need to protect every citizen. Um, our constitution talks about environmental rights. Most constitutions that do exist in Africa do this. They talk about access to water rights, etc. So it's a rights-based issue, and that often is interplayed with a moral-based issue. So we have a very strong moral obligation with the science that's around, which is unequivocal. Remember, in 2007, the Nobel Prize was awarded to the IPCC authors because they said that climate change was unequivocal. This is no longer a debate in science. This is happening. And to ignore that, and it's now 2021, so many, many years later, to ignore the science um, would be the same. Um, or tantamount to ignoring our moral obligation um, to react. Um, So to me, it boils down to response. Um, And the most appropriate response in uh, in a particular set of circumstances, whether it's protecting a country from sea level rise or whether it's dealing with African farmers' livelihoods um, and access to water, um, so the solution will depend on the circumstances, but those solutions have to be found. It's that simple. 
Thank you, Belinda and Gail. I would add to this, Belinda, I don't know what you think about it, that it seems to me there are some, you know, specific aspects from a moral viewpoint that are raised by the challenge of, of let's say, the ecological crisis in the way we have defined it. One is the fact, it seems to me, that most of those who are responsible are the less affected, in the sense that most polluting countries are the richest, the, the, the most industrialized countries, are those who inherit from the industrial revolution and whose economy, are ba- whose economy is based on fossil fuels. You know? And those are polluting and those are mostly responsible for the vast majority of greenhouse gas emissions. And they are much less affected than many, let's say, quote-unquote, poor countries. I think of Chad, which I know very good. You know, Chad is, is virtually not emitting anything. Uh, people are emitting less than two tons of carbon per year per person, which is almost nothing. Um, and Chad is heavily affected by, by climate change. So there is here this discrepancy between responsibility and, and the, the, the consequence. So the victims are those who are less responsible. And this is a main, this is, it seems to me, one of the main challenges from an ethical viewpoint. The second one is that also, if you look, if you take a broader viewpoint, uh, we realize that the most are not yet born in the sense that the vast majority of the victims of climate change and the erosion of biodiversity and the green scarcity of water, etc., are not yet born. These are generations to come, even though there is already a disaster taking place today. I mean, the effects will be even even harsher and, and more catastrophic in the, in the near future. So we are responsible today for a situation which will affect future generations during centuries. And this, this is new from an ethical viewpoint. I don't think we ever had this kind of challenge in the past. And I would say there is a third dimension, which is also the fact that not only human beings are affected, but also non-human beings, like animals, you know, natural ecosystems. And as you know, there is a growing debate among ethicists today as to whether we should also take into account the common good of animals, of sentient, you know, beings, uh, and not just of, of human beings. So should we develop like an ecocentric, uh, ethics, you know, uh, saying, you know, human beings are not that important on Earth, which I would disagree with. But anyway, I know this is, you know, this is one of the main main uh, mottos of, of deep ecology, for instance. Uh, and should we prioritize natural ecosystems? These kind of questions are new as well. So it seems to me, um, yeah, we have also to face these three dimensions. Thanks, Gail. And yes, Belinda, please. Yeah, thank you. I do want to add. I just want to say that, and it's something I've begun to feel very strongly about lately, is that the ethical responsibility sits on everybody because the most vulnerable, um, as Gil talks about, need to hold the less vulnerable to account. And I don't think enough of that's happening. So there's an accountability responsibility. So the farmers that are sitting without water, without access to fertile land, can't grow food, can't earn a livelihood, they need to hold their governments to account. Um, The governments in those poor countries need to structure um, sensible response strategies and funding strategies that they take to the, the least vulnerable countries or the richer countries. And the richer countries in turn have an, a moral um, obligation to respond to those requests um, in a timely manner. 
and and in the most effective way possible. So, I, you know, I, I'm going to use the term value chain. To me, there's a whole value chain of of responses. They are just different at different depending on the group that is um, responding. Um, but I think this responsibility sits on every single person's um, shoulders. Thanks. The climate crisis poses an existential threat to all nations, but many poor nations are particularly vulnerable. Do the governments in such highly vulnerable nations have any moral argument available to argue effectively for climate justice? Gail, can we begin with you? I would say definitely they have in the sense that, I mean, of course, the situations vary among countries. Let's say the Tuvalu Islands in the Pacific, in the Pacific Ocean, which are going to disappear probably before 2050, are not in the same situation as, let's say, Vietnam. Vietnam will lose, quote unquote, only the Mekong Delta, but the Mekong Delta is quite <laughs> crucial for the food security issue for Vietnam, because this is the place where they cultivate rice. So these very vulnerable countries all have diverse situations, but they all have a point, which is to say, we are mostly irresponsible, not accountable for greenhouse gas emissions, and we are victim of that. So as you know, in, in, in the COP21 Paris Agreement 2015, uh, the international community agreed to say, we are going to do everything possible in order to remain as close as possible to plus 1.5 degrees of global warming at the world level at the end of the century. But to be honest, we're not doing this. We are not uh, keeping this promise. We will probably reach uh, the global the, the, the threshold of 1 plus 1.5 degrees shortly after 2030, so which is just the day after tomorrow. So, so from this viewpoint, we are definitely not doing our job. And you know, to go back to the to the previous discussion with you, Melinda, Melinda, um, for instance, the, you know, we also committed to the Green Fund that we would provide something like $100 billion, which is nothing in comparison to the world GDP, more than 70, 70 trillion, you know. So, so we are not doing the job. We are not even putting the few money that we committed to give to these poor countries in order to help them. Most of these Pacific islands will disappear. This will create huge migrations. For instance, to give you just an example, in, in my center here at Georgetown, we have run simulations in order to try to assess um, the places, the regions on the planet where you will have, at the end of the century, um, combinations of heat and humidity, which are little for a human body, a normal human body, not for you even because you are very strong, but you know, for, for the average person. Um, and it turns out that if we don't do anything, if we, if we follow the business as usual trajectory, then most of the Amazon basin will be just inevitable at the end of the century. Central America, the Congo Basin, the Guinea Gulf, uh, most of the Indian littoral, littoral, you know, Southeast Asia completely abandoned. So let me just take an example, Indonesia. Indonesia today, it's 270 million people. There will be 300 in a few years. This is the most populous Muslim country in the world. I'm wondering where these people are going to migrate. I don't think they will go to Australia. Australia will not be that hospitable. I'm, I'm skeptical. I don't think they will go to China or to the hinterland of China, which is called Vietnam, Malaysia, Thailand. So, you know, this will be a big geopolitical question once Indonesia will become an inevitable. And, and there are many examples of this kind. So, yeah, they definitely have a, a strong point. And this is definitely both an ethical and a geopolitical and an economic challenge for rich countries to face these questions today. 
Thank you, Gail. And Belinda, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I just want to, I mean, I want to re-emphasize the point I made earlier. You know, there are different roles for different actors. And I think you're asking about, you know, the, the, the moral obligation or the ethical role of vulnerable country leaders. Um, and, you know, there's this outward and inward looking responsibility, right? There's a responsibility to hold, as I was saying earlier, the richer countries to account and um, there's a responsibility to make commitments that we can live with and I want to pick well let me finish that point my earlier point first and um, and there's a responsibility to look after citizens and uphold the constitution or and um, whatever it is that overarchingly governs a particular country and um, so that's what I mean by outward and inward looking I think to one of my concerns is that Developing countries or poorer countries are often um, drawn into, for want of a better word, um, situations where they are responding to funding that is being channeled towards mitigation efforts. So in, instead of funding that is needed most, which would be for responding and building adaptive capacities and building resilience to climate change. So I think often, you know, the, the strategies go where the money is and where the politics are, um, and, the, and they often don't meet. So this, this is something that I think all countries, developing countries, need to take responsibility for their own agendas in, in the climate crisis and to be very clear about what that agenda is and then to only accept funding that aligns with that agenda. And I think they will get it, but that, that is a responsibility they have to take. Otherwise, the funders will fund what they want to fund. And even though the Green Climate Fund is supposed to have a balance, 50-50 um, balance between adaptation and mitigation activities, it's nowhere near that target, which was set and agreed. I mean, it's been, been argued for for many years, but it was agreed in Paris in 2015. Um, and recent analysis shows that they're nowhere near 30% for adaptation. So that says to me that we know climate funding is going to all countries, all developing countries, we know that. So where is it going? Um, is it going to the right things? And my my sense, not my sense, my analysis shows me that that is, is not the case. Um, so what is the developed world doing? It's saying, oh, we'll reduce greenhouse gas emissions. We'll do it through countries in Africa. And um, what is the developing world doing? They're going, oh, there's money coming for X, Y, and Z. We'll take it with both hands. That's the thing that has to change um, tomorrow, yesterday. Um, I think it's really the main point I wanted to make there. You know, on this, Linda, I don't know what you think about it, but um, for instance, we could imagine that a strong political leader with a strong ethical conviction could say or could have said at the COP26, I'm ready to put the X uh, billion dollars which are missing for the Green Climate Fund. This will increase my public debt, but who cares? And then, of course, you know, accountants will come with ties and suits and say, well, that's bad. You have too many public debt. And then this guy, this political leader, you know, you can think of Angela Merkel, could organize a worldwide conference, press press conference and say, look, I'm trying to save the planet. And I have some some, you know, dwarfs which are, you know, worrying me because of my public debt. What should I do with them? And, and here you have a conflict between a kind of, I think, very, very narrow minded uh, economic rational on the one hand, and the ethical and simply human perspective on the other hand, because what's at stake, and this was also hidden in your question even, 
is that the survival of human beings is, is at stake in the next century. If you don't do anything, uh, and if, if let's a mission in, in Siberia still melt further as it is doing now already, or in the bottom of the Arctic Ocean, then we might jump not just to plus three or plus four degrees as we are now, but plus six, plus seven at the end of this century, and even plan tests in the next century, plan 10, plus 10, sorry. And we have plus 10, then, you know, I don't know how we are going to survive. So the challenge is to also help the future generations just to be able to survive. And for that purpose, we should just reconsider our accounting conventions like public debt, you know, all this. We have to be clever with that. And the good news, I believe, is that South Africa is exactly doing this now. I mean, the agreement that you have found with ESCOM and the way a number of creditors have given up part of the, 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 the liability they had on ESCOM, which was virtually bankrupt, in order, to, for, in order for ESCOM to fund renewable energies, I find this fantastic. So from my viewpoint, essentially, this is a, a kind of debt swap for nature um, at, a, at the national level. In a context which is highly political in South Africa, and I just find it fantastic that your country did it, and I just hope that this will serve as an example and a model for a number of other countries. I have to say something about that point. I'm sorry, <laughs> it's not such plain sailing, Gil, um, in terms of ESCOM and um, funding renewable energy and the just transition. It's it's a very contested space. And I, th I think it's a very good example, um, even of your question, your overarching question of moral obligation. We are not fulfilling our bargain, not as a country. So we enter into deals. We've got a fantastic renewable energy program in that sense. I agree with Gail, but there's a lot of opposition. Um, the coal movement is alive and strong. Um, I was just in coal mining territory last week doing some field work. I was horrified at what I saw. Fertile, the most fertile food producing land in our country is being redeveloped for coal at the moment. Um, so there's, and, and that is being supported by the coal movement and uh, at a very high political leadership level. So it's, we, we're definitely not out of the woods yet in that regard. Um, our renewable energy program has been incredibly slow. We're sitting with load shedding at the moment um, as a result. Um, and we're not all of us in this country willing to face the fact that the transition from coal is a global movement and there's an inevitability that comes with that. Never mind the moral obligation, there's just an inevitability that's going to hurt us economically and in terms of jobs. Um, so sorry, um, and this is something I, I also feel strongly about. I'm very proud to be South African, I'm very proud of our successes. But if we look at moral dilemmas, there's one going on in exactly that space that Gail's mentioning in South Africa as we speak, literally. Different genders are experiencing the climate crisis differently. What is the moral imperative of a gender-informed response to the climate crisis? May I please include uh, youth and children um, and not just focus on gender, not, not just, but I'd, I'd like to include children. Um, the gender-based responses are critical, um, both because of vulnerability and because of opportunity. Women and children are often the most vulnerable and the disabled, so you can almost think about it in terms of vulnerability within vulnerability. So if you've got a very vulnerable country, an obvious one would be one of the small island states, 
um, the women, the children, the disabled are usually sitting as a, a highly vulnerable bubble within everybody's vulnerability. Um, so that, you know, I think that in a sense is pretty obvious um, that those gender-based and, and children differentiated responses are needed um, and critical from an opportunity perspective. And we, we uh, uh, co-authored and led, led the authorship of a book on this um, where we did 36 case studies around the world of climate change adaptation-oriented enterprises, small, medium enterprises all over the world, developing world, not, not developed. Um, and that research and analysis showed us that women-led enterprises are the most successful um, and that they are often the most innovative um, and quick to uptake in terms of climate change responses. Um, because why? They're looking after the children often, they're worried about their education, they're worried about their health, they're worried about their food security, etc. So that burden of responsibility often drives that response. So the opportunity is to support um, in a very proactive way women-led enterprises. The reason I want to focus on children is because nobody does. Um, and yet they are, as Gail keeps talking about, they are the future. You know, if we're not going to sort this out for our generation, I'm too old for this to get sorted out in my lifetime. Um, but I certainly want it done for my children and my grandchildren um, and for those of everybody else. Um, so that's the obvious um, statement. But the less obvious is that, so is that children need to be empowered in the solution to drive the solution because in the end it's for them it's not for you and me um, and and so they need to have ownership of it and i'm not seeing that i'm not seeing children's rights children's um children being at the forefront of solutions development anywhere in the developing world that we're working in um, and it doesn't make sense to me you know how are they supposed to own the the solution if they're not co-creating it um, the other aspect, again, probably a more obvious one around children and youth is that their jobs and livelihoods. Um, so in Africa, for example, most children would expect, um, maybe not in my country, but certainly in others, most children would expect to go into some kind of land-based, um, farming-based livelihood uh, um, in the future. Even if they don't want to, those are their options. Um, and those options are becoming more and more thin on the ground um, because of climate change. Um, and then the last point is that um, climate change, it comes back to the gender-based issue that if you are looking at children, you also have to look at gender differentiated solutions for children. So young female um, school children, for example, often don't go to school um, during menstruation because they don't have access to running water, they don't have access to safe um, and clean sanitation services. They just don't go to school. And they're already being held back to fetch water in the mornings um, before school or to help on the farm. So those are some of the examples that I think are, are very powerful um, and very, very important to consider if we are looking at this question of moral obligation um, around gender, youth, and children differentiated um, response agendas. Yeah, I cannot agree more with you, Belinda. Um, maybe what I would add is that my experience as a former chief economist of the French Development Bank is that when you have um, projects on the, on the field where you want something really to be achieved, you should rather give the project to the women 
uh, then it works. Uh, it's effective. So let me just give you examples. We run a number of projects which would consist in organizing the access to drinkable water, uh, to fresh water uh, as a common, in, let's say in the suburb of Kinshasa in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And then in the places where we did not, quote unquote, positively discriminate in favor of the woman who would take care of the water, then it was this was not successful. While as soon as the, the women were in charge, then it was a big success. So, so I, I cannot agree more with you. I would maybe add two things. To, the, 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 the other one is that, um, you know, for the Sahel in bed, <clears throat> just below the Sahara Desert, there is a big challenge today, which is the demographic issue because of global warming, which is accelerating the, the pace at which the desertification takes place in a number of countries like Cameroon, you know, Burkina Faso, et cetera, et cetera. Um, um, my experience is that the, the unique, very reliable way to have an influence on the demography is to promote the education of girls. Uh, and this, at French Open Bank, this is our top, this was, because I'm not working there anymore, but this was our top priority in the Sahel. So we have to, because girls today are the big part of the solution tomorrow. So that's, that's a big aspect. And, and maybe the third point I wanted to, to stress is that I don't know, I'm not aware of any <coughs> investigation in this direction, but I'm wondering whether we could prove that on average, women pollute less than men, you know, in industrialized countries. This, I don't know. I would not be surprised if this was the case. Um, this is an idea for a next uh, PhD dissertation. For many persons, being rooted in a particular place is an integral part of their sense of identity and well-being. How should we ensure concerns such as these are not lost or trivialized within the climate debate? And Gail, please. Yeah, definitely, I agree with that. I mean, that's part of a human being's identity, to be rooted somewhere, to have a place, a home, and definitely there will be a lot of suffering uh, experienced by on the side of migrants who are forced to to migrate because of you know the ecological disaster um it seems to me we have to take already this into account today i was mentioning the, the challenge of indonesia a couple of minutes ago and i do believe the international community should think about it today in order to prepare solutions for the next three decades or four decades because before it becomes too late so um what we are trying to think about here at georgetown in my team is the following, you know, we, we were speaking about the Green Wall in Senegal a couple of years ago, funded by the World Bank, but probably you know that this is not really happening. This is just a buzzword and there is nothing real serious, really serious in Senegal taking place today. Whereas at the same time, we know that there would be a big demographic push in all these countries on the Sahelian band. So the question is, how do you ensure food security there and how do you make sure that those people will not be forced to migrate and to leave the home to cross the Mediterranean Sea, let's say for instance, and to go to Europe. And, and it seems to me the solution, there is a solution, uh, maybe I'm very optimistic, you know, but I try to find solutions. There is one of the solutions is that it happens that 13,000 years ago, this place, the, the desert, the Sahara Desert was a big ocean. It was a big sea. So we know that there is a lot of water beneath the surface maybe sometimes very deep below the surface, like minus 400 meters. But we know that for sure this water is somewhere. Um, and it happens that there are engineers who know now how to identify water, aquifer sources, you know, uh, with very high reliability. 
So we could just find a big project in order to identify, to map where the water is, and then to find decentralized renewable energy solutions like PV, you know, in order to have pumps for people, electric pumps to, to draw the water, and you have a big project of agroecology along the desert in order to prevent the desertification from accelerating. Um, I know it sounds a little bit crazy, but actually if you talk with you talk with agro-engineers on this question, they are all very enthusiastic. The question is the political will to do that. Uh, that's an idea, you know, just to, to help those people keep their home and stay where they are. And then after that, of course, you have many other questions like education and all this, but food security is definitely the major, the major urgency, it seems to me, in this region. That's just an example. Thank you, Gail and Belinda. I've got a short response, Evan. The only way to not trivialize um, people's centeredness in terms of where they're located um, is by combating the climate change problem in a meaningful way. If we don't do that, we're just ignoring that situation. We're just ignoring people that are living in small island countries that haven't got anywhere to go um, if the problem had some other than to get in a boat and push off to Europe. Um, the only way to not trivialize that kind of situation is to act, act fast, um, and act meaningfully and deep. Thank you both. Moving on to the next question. It is argued that some levels of greenhouse gas emissions are still necessary for human economic development despite growing access to green energy technologies. Given the need to reduce global greenhouse gas emissions, does the concept of climate justice give us guidance in how we ought to distribute this limited greenhouse gas emissions budget? Belinda, would you like to start? Thanks, um, Evan. I, you know, I've got a slightly different take on that kind of question. I don't think we need to or want to or can afford to um, redistribute or distribute uh, a carbon budget. Um, I think that we've run out of time for that, um, firstly. And secondly, and, uh, you know, those of us that are asking, and our country is one of them, and countries that I work for in Africa are among these that go, you know, it's our turn to develop, it's our turn to industrialize, we need to be able to emit in the process. We're shooting ourselves in the foot, right? If we do that, um, because then we're contributing to a problem that we're expecting others to solve and they're not doing it fast enough. So why would anybody want to shoot themselves in the foot like that? Um, firstly, secondly, I don't think it's necessary to redistribute the carbon budget. I really don't. I mean, I think that as a country like China or South Africa or India or US or whoever it is that's a big emitter, I have to smile with a bit of cynicism. But you know, as they start bringing down, as we start bringing down our greenhouse gas emissions with our wonderful renewable energy programs that are displacing Eskom coal, um, not rapidly enough, um, the argument shouldn't be that there's more to go around. The argument for me will be how do you leapfrog what we've learned, what the whole world has learned from the Industrial Revolution and what has happened since then. I mean, we know so much now. Why would we want to go back to that? It just doesn't make sense to me. Um, and Africa is a continent um, that has a fantastic opportunity to leapfrog both how 
developed countries have dealt with water, how they've dealt with land use, and how they've dealt with energy. Um, we have a great opportunity to leapfrog that. Um, maybe less so in South Africa, because as I said, we are a big emitter, and we are a big emitter because our economy is so intrinsically tied up with mining um, and coal, and coal is our main source of electricity and energy. Um, but for the rest of Africa that don't have those kind of resources, there's no need to go and develop them. Mozambique's got swathes of coal belts um, across them. Why go and exploit those for local electricity production when you can do renewable energy and deal with your peak load and backup power um, with battery storage options that are coming to the fore, for example? There is just no need to do that. And why would you want to set yourself up for the kind of situation that we're in in South Africa? where we've got highly centralized energy that's not producing enough for the population. And everyone expects to get sort of electricity that flows like water and it doesn't. Um, and nobody can do anything about it quickly enough because we haven't got decentralized solutions in place enough yet. So even our renewable energy program is not decentralized. So now the big shift is towards decentralized solutions and you want that. In Africa, you want rural economies to be able to continue to survive. Um, they're not going to do so off a carbon budget. They're going to do so if they are able to implement effective renewable energy technologies, for example. So I don't think it's wise, affordable, and I don't think it's necessary. I think we can still develop at a great rate um, by leapfrogging um, the experiences of industrialized nations. Thank you, Belinda and Gail. What I would say on my side is that there are many asked, there are many ways to understand your question. Even uh, one would be to say, I, I, I know that's not what you're saying, but and that's not what Belinda was saying either. One would be to understand that you are asking us whether we believe in green growth. Is one way to understand that, and as you may know, there is a big debate on that. So I definitely don't believe in green growth. I don't believe this is possible. In, in as much it's it's not possible to decouple entirely the growth of GDP from the use of energy and the use of natural resources and the material footprint of our economy. So definitely we have to think of degrowth of a certain number of sectors, it seems to me, uh, starting of course with fossil fuel sectors. Um, I'm not saying that we should have as a target the degrowth of GDP, which is another point, but I'm just saying keeping the growth of GDP and, and dreaming that this will be compatible thanks to some decoupling is just, just not realistic. Even from a thermodynamic viewpoint, it's not possible. Now, there is another aspect which is much more subtle and which were, you, you were alluding to, it seems to me, Belinda, which is that, let me just give you an example um, with copper. So we know I have a paper, paper co-written with a geophysicist which shows that we should reach the worldwide peak of extraction of copper before 2060 which means that after 2060, we won't be able to increase the quantity of copper we are extracting from the soil at the world level. Now, we need more copper now in order to build green infrastructures. So we need to, to a certain extent, to pollute more now in order to pollute less tomorrow. And it might be the case that, and I, I know this sounds a little bit, I mean, embarrassing, it might be the case that we need to pollute and to emit greenhouse gas now a little bit more in order to build the green infrastructures which will allow us to pollute much less in the future. We have to admit that there are these kind of trade-offs and we have to think about them in our scenarios, it seems to me. Morally, what might motivate governments to think in a longer time frame about climate justice consequences and weigh the cost of implementing changes 
now for us against the benefits that future generations will realize or the future harms they will be unable to avoid? Belinda, please. It's an interesting question and it's a little bit, I think, um, a little bit in a way of, of a mouthful. Um, but I think, so I'm going to pick up, sorry, and that's not a criticism on the question. Um, I'm going to pick up on the time, the longer time frame aspect of it. Um, and I think in a way this also comes back to Gail's last point around trade-offs. Um, you know, the costs of implementing changes now against the benefits that future generations will realize. I mean, that's what you're talking about, right, Gail, just now. Sometimes you have to pollute now to have a greener future, for example. But I, I just want to touch on the time frame question because this is something that occupies my mind a lot. Um, and they're different. So this is important because everything we do in the world is around a short time frame. Um, whether it's the private sector reporting in their annual reports or their biannual um, financial results on the stock exchange, that's a very short time frame in the context of, of climate change, right? Um, it, or if it's government who do maybe five-year plans at the most in the main, um, you know, so local municipalities will do five-year plans typically. Um, even five years is a very short time frame. Then you get a sort of national development plan, like South Africa's was the last one, was well, current one was developed in 2010, 2011, um, and it takes us to 2030. And suddenly we're finding ourselves in 2021 at the end of, but nine years left of that development plan, and we're lucky if a tenth of that development plan has been realized. Um, so even that is a short time frame. So I think even in the context of no climate change, our planning horizons are too short. Um, and they don't allow us to, and this is where I want to circle back to Gail's last point on trade-offs, they don't allow us to make or think about the trade-offs that we need to make. They just don't. Um, and whether it's a trade-off of going, okay, we're going to continue to escalate and increase coal mining on very fertile farming land that's our food basket um, in one part of our country. We're going to do that because mining creates jobs and maybe it creates more jobs in agriculture. But we're not, because of the way we plan, we're only thinking in terms of a five-year plan there, right? We're not thinking about the future consequences and that in 10 years' time, that area is going to wake up not growing food anymore. And other parts of the country are not are going to wake up not being able to source food from that area anymore. Now they've got to source it from elsewhere. So the, for me, the trade-off issue, which is a Im very important issue, I completely agree with that part of what you were talking about, Gail. You can't do it if you're only doing it in short-term planning horizons. Um, so I just wanted to focus a little bit on that and I'll give over to Gail and maybe react to some of the things that he says. No, I, I, you know, I essentially agree with what you're, you were saying, Belinda, I would add this, it seems to me, um, you know, one moral obligation for politicians today and political leaders to take this seriously and to, to think long-term, long-run, is that it seems to me what's at stake is that our democracies are threatened today for two reasons. The first one is that, you know, our democracy since Greece, at least Athens, is based, the principle, the very principle is based on the idea that people who need to defend our interests, our own interests, should have a say in the, in the political conversation. And now we're in a situation where the vast majority of those people who are concerned don't have a say just because they are not yet born. 
So this is a big challenge for our democracy. How do you organize a democratic debate with people who are not there? And how do you organize a democratic debate with trees, with tigers, delphins, whales, giraffes, etc.? You know, so that's that's a big question, um, and and I'm sure politicians even confusedly realize that. And so, and the second point is that there is so much suffering already today taking place that, of course, one, it's stupid, but you know, one reaction is populism. We have seen the consequence of that in the 30s in Europe. Um, and, I'm, and, and to a certain extent, we are on the same track today. So it seems to me a political leader who is a little bit responsible is not to not just think of his own or her own career, but also just of the future of democracy in our countries. And if he or she just play, you know, the bad game, he or she will bear, bear huge responsibility in populist governments taking power in the, in the near future in, a many, in many countries, including France, including Germany, including, you know, not just Poland, India, and, and Brazil. Due to climate change, what do we owe people who face a loss of their culture, their homeland, and in some cases, national self-determination? especially for coastal populations and island nations. Gail, could you begin? It seems to me what we owe them is hospitality. Uh, hospitality is the main concept of the Enlightenment. If you look at what Immanuel Kant, you know, the big German philosopher wrote, he had a very interesting, fascinating argument. He said, you know, the planet is round, is a circle. So if you try to escape from a place, you will end up meeting those people who are escaping like you. It was funny at this time, you know, in the 18th century, but it's just a way to say, you know, the, finite, the planet is finite and the finiteness of the world forces us to be hospitable to each other because migrant, I'm, I, I might refuse to open my door to a migrant tomorrow and then the day after tomorrow, I will be a migrant myself. So this is especially true for the US and for Europe and probably for part of Asia once, as I, as I said earlier, Indonesia will get trouble in the coming decades. Um, and hospitality is a way to understand that climate, biodiversity, health, and everything that really matters are global commons. So we are to find ways to share this with those people who already who already have lost everything today. Thank you, Gail and Belinda. Please. Yeah, I want to. I completely agree on the hospitality front. I mean, to me, it's it's pretty straightforward. You don't get to say I'm not going to reduce my greenhouse gas emissions and then say as well I'm not going to welcome or let these people into my country. Um, so the hospitality, uh, you know, that's just putting it bluntly, but the hospitality factor is important. But I want to just add to that, and it also goes back to my last, my last point to your last question, Evan, and that is that we have to plan for it and we need to let people know um, that they're part of that plan. Um, so if Tuvalu um, or, or one of these small island states is really, really panicking, and they do, um, about sea level rise and being swallowed up by the sea, give them the comfort. If you're not giving the, them the comfort of an urgent response to the crisis, then give them the comfort of knowing that they'll be welcome, they'll be cushioned into a different um, life or way of life, they will have access to resources and they won't be turned away. Um, and that I think has to be planned for because what you don't want is this knee-jerk reaction that we see when a refugee, you know, we've seen it with refugee crises from Somalia or Syria, 
is a really good example, right? Where people en masse leave Syria, go off to Europe in boats, and then there's a big fight as to who's going to take them and who isn't. Um, and now these people are feeling even worse than what they were when they left home. Uh, you've got to plan for that. Um, and so, you know, Europe, America, the countries that people will go to need to have a plan. They need to make that plan known. And I would go so far. I mean, it's a hard ask, I know. Um, it was not the way the world operates, but I would go so far as to say that those plans need to be co-created with the citizens that are going to be part of that migration. Um, because to me, there's an inevitability about losing at least parts of some of our small island states. Um, I can't see how it can't happen. And they know that. Um, but nobody else is going, we know that too, and we're going to bring you along with us in, in creating a solution. And that's the thing that needs to change. So that is the end of the questions. But I want to give you both an opportunity to share any closing thoughts that you have with the audience. So, Gail, can we begin with you? Yeah, maybe, you know, as a, as a summary of what we discussed, I would say what's happening today is that we are challenged at the very roots of enlightenment in the 18th century. One way to understand it is to say, you know, back to this time, what we Western people decided is that our civilization would be based on three pillars. One is, is um, essentially the desacralization of power. In as much we would say it's not the job of the church to tell us what we have to decide collectively. It's not the job of you know, history or tradition. We are going to discuss this democratically. And, and in France, for instance, we cut the head of the king one century after the Brits did it. This was a way, you know, a symbolic way to say it's not the king now who decided in the name of God what we have to do. First thing. Second thing, rights. We decided that the state of law and rights, human rights, would be, you know, the backstone of our civilization. Uh, also, in order to protect people from dictatorship. And third, private ownership. And you, you may know that in the Declaration of Human Rights, we said that private ownership would be something sacred and untouchable. Now, we are making the experience that private ownership is part of the problem today, it seems to me, <clears throat> as I said earlier, in as much, you know, we have to put boundaries to it, we have to put boundaries to state sovereignty. And it seems to me what we have to discover is that commons have to take the place of private ownership. Now, at the same time, we are in a very odd situation because we are completely betraying the heritage of enlightenment in as much we have put financial markets at the place of the king, financial markets now are, have the power to dictate to states what they have to do in as much they can say, we refuse to fund your public debt if you don't, you know, suppress uh, uh, employment pensions, etc., etc., or, or kill your hospital, your sanitary public system and these kind of things. So financial markets have taken the place of God, actually, of the king. And then the, the state of law is violated virtually everywhere. Look at what's happening in China, but not only in China, in Russia, but also partially in the US, so on Europe. Um, so we have to re- we have, it seems to me, to implement an Enlightenment 2.0 phase, taking into account seriously the challenge of ecology and the fact that we have to refound, to a certain extent, democracy, <clears throat> as we understand it. Thank you, Gail. And Belinda? 
share some cl closing thoughts. Um, and just for me, the take-homes um, from what both Gail and I have said today, not just what I have, is that um, this is about planning. Um, and I think there are different elements to that planning. I think it's planning collectively, planning for the long term, planning for um, trade-offs, um, and planning for a just transition. Um, with the emphasis on just, on just. And that, you know, it circles back to all of your earlier questions around how do we develop? Um, do we have a moral obligation towards the most vulnerable? How do we deal with that? Do we have gender differentiated and youth differentiated responses? That's the just element. And the transition needs to happen in a way that leaves no one behind. And if you're going to do that, um, you have to think about the trade-offs, you have to account for them, you have to plan for them, uh, you have to weigh them up and you have to mitigate the losses um, that come with some of those trade-offs. And you can't do that if you don't plan. I think we've got some excellent platforms at our fingertips. Um, Gail, you spoke about new institutions earlier. I get terrified of new institutions because I sometimes think you throw away the bad and you replace it with even worse. Um, so I worry about that. Um, but, but what I do like about some of the existing institutions even though, or platforms, even though they're not necessarily producing the goods, um, is that they exist and then create a platform for collective planning, for long-term planning, for thinking about justly. Um, World Economic Forum, uh, the G, the, the group of 20, the group of seven, the G77 plus China, you know, there are various economic platforms and this in the end is an economic crisis in addition to an environmental crisis, in addition to a humanitarian crisis. So if we can bring those platforms together, think about them differently and put those four pillars of planning that I spoke about in place, we may have a shot at a just transition going forward. I want to thank you both on behalf of the Center for Values and International Development for your time and for sharing your unique perspectives. Thank you. It's a pleasure. This concludes the fifth of five conversations sponsored by the Center for Values and International Development. We invite you to listen to our four other dialogues on development ethics, empowerment, inclusive development, and democratic values, all with the goal of strengthening the relationship between development practitioners and ethicists, because moral clarity matters. Mm -hmm.